Hello. Wherever you're listening to us, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. I'm Hari Arakli and this is today's Tech Briefing. In this program, and our mission is to get 100 million people to be working in climate over the next 10 years and we're a for-profit company. So, uh, we think there is uh, the climate climate change is both the biggest uh, crisis but also one of the biggest opportunities uh, out there. That's after these headlines. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi launched e-rupee, a cashless and contactless instrument for digital payments in the country yesterday. e-rupee acts as an e-voucher based on a QR code or SMS string which is delivered to the mobile phones of the beneficiaries. e-rupee connects the sponsors of the services with beneficiaries and service providers digitally. It also ensures that the payment to the service provider is made only after the transaction is completed. being prepaid in nature it assures timely payment to the service provider without involvement of any intermediary the one time payment mechanism of e-rupee will allow users to redeem the voucher without a card digital payments app or internet banking access at the service provider the e-rupee platform has been developed by national payments corporation of india on its unified payments interface platform in collaboration with the department of financial services Ministry of Health and Family Welfare and National Health Authority Online insurance marketplace Policy Bazaar's parent company PB Fintech has filed a draft red herring prospectus with the markets regulator Securities and Exchange Board of India to raise 60.2 billion rupees through an initial share sale Economic Times reports That makes Policy Bazaar the fifth Indian startup after Zomato, Paytm, MobiQuick and CarTrade to begin the process of listing on Indian stock exchanges. The company will raise 37.5 billion rupees by issuing new shares and the remaining 22.67 billion rupees through a secondary sale of shares via an offer for sale. SoftBank an investor will sell shares worth 18.75 billion rupees. while founders including chief executive yashish dahia will sell shares worth up to 3.925 billion rupees pb fintech is also in talks to raise around 7.5 billion rupees through private placement of equity shares ahead of the ipo according to et samsung has set up an artificial intelligence machine learning and data engineering lab at the kle technological university in hubballi in Karnataka called the Samsung Student Ecosystem for Engineered Data or SEED Lab students and faculty members at KLE Tech will get to work on joint research and development pro- projects along with senior engineers at Samsung R&D Institute Bangalore who work in the domains of mobile camera tech speech and text recognition and machine learning Mo Engage an insights led customer engagement platform has raised 32.5 million dollars in an investment led by Multiples Alternate Asset Management Existing investors Matrix Partners India Eight Roads Ventures and F Prime Capital also participated while Xfinity Venture Partners made an exit in this round The funding will help more engage accelerate its growth and deepen its products AI and predictive capabilities. The company has more than 1000 cust- consumer brands in 35 countries using its solutions to better reach 900 million users every month according to a press release. Nectar.ai, a sales productivity software provider, 
has raised an additional $6 million as part of its seed funding led by B Capital Group, 314 Capital and Nexus Venture Partners. This takes its total seed funding to $8.1 million. The company will use the money for product development, recruitment and sales and marketing. Nectar.ai was founded last year by Abhijit Vijayvargiya and Aravind Ravi Sulekha. It has been working with some customers in India and the US with its product in private beta mode. It expects its product to be generally available in the first half of 2022. Climate change brought about by humans is the biggest crisis facing the planet. And making humanity sustainable for the long haul is also a massive economic enterprise that will need trillions of dollars and hundreds of millions of people working full-time to effect change in whichever kind of work they are engaged in, from farmers to captains of industry. Anshuman Bapna, a Stanford-educated serial entrepreneur, is on to his next venture called Terra.do, a school for people to learn the serious business of climate change. I spoke to Anshuman about his ambition to train 100 million people on various aspects of climate change. Here's more from our conversation. Uh, Anshuman, uh, welcome to this podcast. Uh, thank you for making time for this. Maybe you could start with uh, telling us uh, about uh, you know, what triggered the idea for Terra and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks uh, for having me, Ari. Uh, so first of all, the company that I run is called Terra.do, do as in doing. And uh, this is a company that started a year back. And it's an online school and community for people who want to work on solving climate change. And our mission is to get 100 million people to be working in climate over the next 10 years. And we're a for-profit company. So uh, we think there is uh, the climate, climate change is both the biggest uh, crisis, but also one of the biggest opportunities uh, out there. And uh, uh, we want to make that transition happen. So my own background has been as a tech entrepreneur, I started and sold multiple internet companies over the past 20 years, worked at places like Google, uh, was chief product officer at Make My Trip, And then about two years ago, a classic midlife crisis while I was at the Make My Trip in India and uh, trying to figure out what's really worth working on. And one of the things that uh, I was uh, very curious about for a long time was climate change. And I dove in and spoke to lots and lots of people trying to figure out the answer to the question around what could I do with my skills in climate. And it turned out uh, there were two big insights. One was that there were many more people like me who were asking the same question, and it wasn't really easy to figure out how to answer it. Uh, so there was a lot of friction. But also, uh, as an outsider, it felt this massive disconnect where uh, it seemed like we were talking about fundamentally changing how we do half of the world's GDP, right? Everything from energy to agriculture to, um, uh, uh, to transportation and whatnot and across all these different countries. And yet the number of people working in climates seemed to be minuscule. And uh, so the, the light bulb moment went off and the thinking was that, look, we'll need to figure out a way to get 100 million plus people working in climate over the next 10 years across the globe. And that, is, that sounds very much like the internet to me. So about a year back, uh, me and my co-founder Kamal and my other co-founder Mayank decided to start this company, which, is, uh, which basically runs a bunch of different programs for all kinds of professionals um, who are looking to transition their careers into climate. Hmm. Uh, so tell us about uh, your flagship courses. Yeah, so uh, we started out, uh, we do have a flagship course. And in fact, it started out solving exactly the problem that I had, which is uh, somebody outside the climate space 
one of the big questions that I had was that, look, give me an, a landscape overview of what all the uh, opportunities and challenges are, and then allow me to figure out what the intersection with my skills might be. So we built out this program and launched our first cohort in May last year, which is a 12-week program that takes you through everything climate, from climate science to economics to policy and regulation, but also deep dives into uh, sectors like energy and agriculture and whatnot. Uh, and it's, by definition, it's a very broad course, uh, very intense. So it's about 10 to 12 hours uh, of work every week for 12 weeks. So it's, a, it, it's not a lightweight commitment. Uh, that's how we started. But uh, as, uh, especially as you start diving into climate, you realize it's a bit like uh, how we see the internet now. 20 years ago, when I was starting my internet company, um, it, it, se it seemed like this cute little toy that was going to be important uh, in its own kind of side zone. Uh, and little do we know that 20 years later, uh, internet is kind of the underpinning of everything that we do, including politics. And I think climate is going to be just as transformational, if not more. Uh, this is a planetary level crisis, and it's going to upend everything that we know about, uh, not just industrial sectors, but also inter-country uh, relationships about how governments work and what they're responsible for. So this is going to be uh, the biggest transformation that I can imagine, uh, uh, even over and above the internet. And so therefore, uh, this is a very wide ranging topic. And now uh, the way we think of Terra is that it's a starting point for all climate learning. And uh, we have many different programs now. We have everything, uh, a program, for example, which is, uh, which is focused on investors looking to invest in climate tech. But another program, which is a farm school, where if you want to learn regenerative farming practices, you can actually work on a physical farm uh, in some part of the world while learning these things. And then, of course, programs on electric vehicles, on ESG, on circular economy, and many, many more. So that's what we do right now. So we have all these different programs for all different kinds of professionals uh, that are uh, up and running on Terra. Hmm. The uh, underlying uh, premise of thesis at uh, Terra.do, uh, is it uh, like climate change is basically the biggest problem we're facing right now, so we have to act now? Or or are you framing it uh, in terms of how climate change is also a, a very massive economic opportunity or it's, it's both? Yeah, Hari, it's both actually. In fact, uh, uh, so if, if you look at various estimates, somewhere between 30 to $40 trillion, which is roughly half of the world's GDP, needs to be deployed uh, for climate solutions over the next 10 to 15 years. And that's unlike any transformational uh, investment that has ever happened. And uh, if you look at, for example, everything from countries, so roughly about 70% of the world's GDP, uh, countries like China and others have committed to essentially being what is called net zero, which is uh, net out their carbon emissions to zero by certain dates in the near future, in, in the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, so that's countries which are now uh, in this massive net zero transition. Then there are um, entire sectors. Uh, so for example, the, electric, the automobile industry is completely appended now, right? Which is um, electric vehicles are reaching a point where they are better in every single way possible on their uh, uh, industrial uh, internal combustion engine counterparts. Same thing with, with energy. In fact, it's kind of uh, right now, and this is one of the problems that India has, which is we have so many coal deposits, but we also have this massive solar potential. And uh, uh, solar cost of energy has, and wind included has gone to the point where it's actually unfeasible to, to not only launch new coal plants, but to even run existing coal plants. That's a massive transformation in how prices have fallen in, uh, in renewables. 
So what that means is that uh, within 10 years, the in most of the sectors that you see, the top 10 companies that uh, that you think are, uh, are, are are the top 10 companies today need not be the ones uh, 10 years from now. So just to give an example, we always think of oil and gas majors as these massive companies, right? Now, for every single one of these oil and gas majors, there's an equivalent renewable energy company, which is already bigger than them. And I think that fact hasn't really yet sunk in that uh, we are living in a post-oil and gas uh, world already. We are living in a post-internal combustion engine world already. We are living in a world where uh, a lot of these transformations are happening today. And that to me is a a massive economic opportunity. I must also underscore that it's also a massive uh, crisis in the sense that uh, it's also an opportunity in in a different way, which is our current world order and the way we run our societies is very, uh, uh, it's a big have and have nots kind of a divide. And, as as and climate is unfortunately exacerbates that which is the countries and societies that actually created all these emissions are not the ones that are necessarily going to suffer the most from it it's countries like india countries like bangladesh and marginalized communities in these countries which are going to suffer the most so to me it also feels like an opportunity to change the way we distribute uh, the resources and wealth in this uh, in this society so to me it also feels like a political movement at one level which is where we decide what the new way of uh, of uh, living in an equitable world feels like. Otherwise, I mean, there's a, there's, and for some people, there's entirely a world vision where you could have a dozen trillionaires uh, like Elon Musk and more power to him, but a dozen trillionaires who have quote unquote solved the climate crisis, but we are living in just as inequitable a world as before, in fact, even more so. I think we have an opportunity to potentially change that. And to me, that's what's most exciting about working in this space right now. Hmm. You you have said previously that you think that every business today is a climate business, one way or the other. Uh, can you explain that to us a bit? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would say that every business is a climate business, but uh, any business that has a long-term horizon um, has to deal with the fact that uh, climate risk is massively baked inside their portfolio. And uh, just to give you a classic example, BlackRock which is the world's largest asset manager with about eight and a half trillion dollars under asset management. And frankly, uh, a company that is capitalism in red tooth and claw, right? It doesn't get more capitalistic than BlackRock. BlackRock here has been coming out consistently for the past two years and saying that uh, when they look at the world now uh, from an investment or a divestment uh, 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 mindset, they take climate risk as the primary lens that they are using from here on. And the reason is very simple, which is that if you are, if you have any long-term assets in any part of the world right now, you are facing an, uh, an ecological crisis that uh, uh, frankly, human civilization hasn't seen. So what's gonna happen over the next 20, 30 years is so up in the air already. And even if you're not kind of paying a lot of attention to what the latest climate science says, I think all of us can pick up our newspapers and start seeing the ferocity and frequency with which natural disasters seem to be occurring. And our climate science and, and our science has gotten good enough to understand what fraction of that is attributable to climate change and it's massive. I think the, uh, uh, and especially for India, I think this is something which I feel really cut up about because I think uh, it's, it's kind of ironic that uh, of all the countries, large countries in the world that are projected to, uh, to get most negatively affected by climate change, India is number one and yet our own understanding of how deep-rooted this challenge is for the Indian economy is, uh, to me, it feels like middling at best. 
Um, so to me, there's almost this uh, uh, this this uh, uh, call to action for everyone who is industries of cap like captains of industries right now, but also starting their careers right now. That this is the most important transformational thing, both economically and and uh, and socially, that you could be working on over the next ten to twenty years. And I implore everyone who's listening to to consider that uh, before uh, uh, they make the choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us a couple of examples, I mean, just to illustrate this point that you made about how we're not doing enough. I'm not even aware uh, to the extent that we need to be in India. I mean, look at. Uh, our national newspapers, right? Uh, so maybe I'll just give you a data point first, which is that uh, there's a nature study that shows that uh, India's GDP is already a third lower than what it would have been because of climate change in the past 30 years, right? And that doesn't even register with us. For us, it's like, oh, climate change is kind of this futuristic problem that maybe me, not me, or maybe my my next generation will need to worry about is more roti kapra makan problems here and now let's kind of focus on that and i think it's just like entirely uh, uh, we've we've gotten the story exactly wrong uh, so if you look at uh, the uh, i mean the way for example right now uh, a lot of countries have started to move around this uh, entire notion about net zero which is that we have to reduce the carbon intensity of uh, of our growth india is going to be one of the fastest growing countries at the largest scale and uh, if we don't figure out how to do that without affecting our development trajectory, then we are, like we have this Hobbesian choice: either con- con- uh, consign a lot, many hundreds, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people to longer in poverty because we're not taking an energy-intensive path, or uh, push out even more carbon into the air and therefore mess up the entire world and uh, what's going to happen to it. So it's a very uh, 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 unhappy choice that we have as uh, consumers and as policymakers in India. But I think there is grounds for optimism. And if you look at what's happening in India in both the renewable sector and in the uh, automobile sector, it seems like we are pulling ourselves up uh, um, uh, with our bootstraps. India's renewable uh, energy generation has been just fantastic and has hiccups lately. But uh, I think there's uh, awareness that this is the this is the part to go, that India does not need to make the $2 trillion mistake that both US and China did by essentially building a, an economy which is massively uh, dependent on fossil fuels. We can we can skip that generation. We can we can leap over that all completely. Same thing with automobiles, and I think uh, we'll see and we could see a lot more of that. For example, in industrial sectors. So Dalmia Cement, for example, has been working on how cement gets manufactured, which is about responsible for about seven percent of all carbon emissions in the world out there. And they've done some really innovative things, innovative things that could potentially go out and be uh, path breaking in the rest of the world too. And there are many such more examples. I think what we really need is uh, almost like this pincer movement, where which has happened in the rest of the world, which is on one side you have incredible level of public awareness of how important this challenge is, and therefore pressure uh, from all kinds of civic society uh, for industries and for governments to move on this. And on the other side, we also need some inspirational leadership um, that uh, takes on this challenge and uses that to allow the Indian economy to leapfrog into this new world where there are electric vehicles, there are uh, 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 renewable power plants everywhere and so on. So I think there is this, uh, this, what we need is kind of this this, uh, imagination that uh, we have shown multiple times in the past, and I hope that we can summon that again uh, for this crisis. Hmm. 
tell us a bit more about uh, Teradot Do uh, in terms of what people have been uh, uh, doing after uh, taking your course. Give us maybe one or two examples of people who took your flagship course and then went on to do uh, interesting things in climate change. Yeah, sure. I'll, maybe I'll just pick up two examples. Um, one is of this uh, engineer, uh, hardware engineer from Apple, uh, who joined one of our programs. And, uh, and, and right now, after graduating from the program, uh, one of the big things that we do emphasize in our program is this whole balance between mitigation and adaptation. Uh, and this is often missed out, which is that when we talk about climate, we often equate it to carbon. And we don't think about human misery as much, or at least uh, how, how to involve um, local stakeholders and communities. So what this guy is building is that he runs this, uh, he's the CTO and co-founder of this new company, which is uh, taking drones and using them to uh, monitor mangroves and how well they're protected by local communities, but also using that same technology and the, uh, uh, the fintech uh, rails on top of that to make sure that donor money coming in to protect those mangroves are going to local communities and benefiting them directly. So this whole mitigation plus adaptation uh, synthesis that he is doing in this company is just fantastic. Uh, the company is called Flying uh, uh, Flying Drones, uh, uh, Flying Robots, sorry. Fly, sorry, I'm sorry, Flying Forests. Uh, and uh, the second example is this uh, of this individual called Dipankar and his wife Gauri. Uh, who are both based at Waterville right now. And what they're doing is that uh, they're building sustainable, really low-cost housing, which is disaster resilient for uh, people in uh, in the areas of India, which are often affected by the uh, cyclones that uh, often hit the coastline. So they've been working with a bunch of uh, local innovators to build this prototype of uh, of houses that could be scaled up rapidly. So those are just two examples of uh, how you can take different ends and completely different skills altogether to solve for climate. And I'm really proud, proud that uh, we, we had like a small role in pushing these individuals on their climate journeys. Uh, who can uh, take your courses and what is kind of the minimum requirement in terms of what they need to know so that they can get the maximum benefit out of your courses? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, again, we have um, both horizontal and vertical courses. And uh, typically, people who have never heard of Terra or have been uh, thinking about climate as an outsider pick up one of our horizontal courses. Uh, and there, uh, the key thing that we are looking for is uh, intent, which is, is your intent to take your professional skills and move into solving some climate challenge over the next 6 to 12 months? If that's the case, then I think this is a good place to be. Um, also, I think more importantly, uh, there are various stages of climate activation, as I call it. Stage one is when you're kind of vaguely aware that, oh, everyone seems to be talking about climate. Maybe there's something going on. I don't think we're a good fit for that. Uh, there's stage two when you realize that this is really important and you've started to do a little bit of your own research. And I have a feeling that we're not probably good for that either. I think we're good for stage three right now, which is when, you, when you've done just about enough research to understand that this is a real big deal and uh, professionally that you need to figure out a way to use your skills to uh, solve for the, for the climate crisis in some manner. It need not be a full-time job. It could be, uh, you could be working 20% of your time, uh, but, or you could be thinking about doing higher studies in something which is climate or sustainability related. 
that's a time when I think uh, this 12-week intense program and the community that comes along with that is going to be the most powerful. Hmm. Uh, tell us a bit more about how you put together these courses. Did you put them together with in-house experts? Or you also collaborated with uh, uh, climate change-related uh, schools and universities? How do you do it? Yeah, so uh, my co-founder, Kamal, uh, also of Indian origin. So she's a PhD in energy from Berkeley, taught climate change at Oxford for many years, also taught climate change to high schoolers in Hawaii, where she lives right now. So she's kind of this very uh, pedagogically sound, very passionate about uh, of, uh, about climate education. So she built our first program, the horizontal program that we have. And this is a classic uh, cohort-based learning program where there's a lot of high-touch uh, instructor support during the program for people to uh, stay unblocked and keep learning. Uh, but then since then, all the vertical programs that we have launched, we have partnered with experts. So for example, the electric vehicles program that we have is uh, uh, created and run by somebody who is IFC's uh, uh, lead for electric vehicles. The program for climate tech investing is run by uh, a woman who, was, uh, who, not, who, who runs one of the largest funds, of, a fund of funds uh, investing in climate. And so on. So each of these programs are run by uh, domain experts, and uh, we provide them both the technological uh, support, but also the operation support to run these cohorts smoothly. Okay, what what are the uh, next big steps uh, at uh, Terra.Do? Do? Yeah, so uh, so I keep saying this that uh, there's a reason why we are not Terra dot Learn, but Terra dot Do. Uh, which is my ambition is not to try to become a Coursera for climate because that's just not interesting enough. More importantly, that doesn't solve the climate crisis. What we're really looking to do is to figure out if we can build a bridge from someone outside climate to someone working in climate. So therefore that to me is a three-layered problem where learning is just the first part of it. But on top of that, you need to add another layer, which is around networking, which is building a tribe, a community of people who you can start now professionally hanging out with and understand where the opportunities are. And then on top of that, there is this layer of doing, which is everything from uh, uh, finding jobs. And we run a career jobs fair, which is very successful. We, uh, but also maybe starting companies. So we run this thing in Terra called Terra Studio which is a way to get uh, people who are looking to start something in climate, whether for profit or non-profit, very quickly accelerated through their journey of going out and, and formally launching a company. So this entire stack uh, is, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a bridge for talent, uh, which is outside climate to get into climate and working and productive as quickly as possible. So we're building all of that uh, under Terra. Hmm, excellent. Uh, very insightful conversation, although a brief one, uh, Anshuman. Uh, thank you so much again for making time for this. I hope to keep the conversation going. Likewise, Ari. Thanks for having me. That was Anshuman Bapna. That's it for this briefing. You can find all our podcasts at ForbesIndia.com and on your favorite podcast apps. I'm Hari Arakli. Thank you for tuning in.